0: You're listening to the Revolution Podcast. Join us as we bust myths and challenge common assumptions, helping you to revolutionize your rooster experience. So today we wanted to talk about one of the big challenges keepers face when trying to educate themselves, you know, whether they're a new keeper or an experienced keeper looking into an issue they're facing. uh, One of the challenges they face is, Finding good information online. You know, you'd think with the internet and the connectivity and the number of keepers that we wouldn't have this issue, but it seems that so much of the at least readily available advice online is either incomplete or heavily biased or flat out wrong. Why is that?
1: Well, there's a lot of things really at play here. Um, it's an interesting situation with chickens because first of all, you know, they're an animal that's legally classified as livestock. Um, and we probably all sort of assume this, but unless you've really put a lot of thought into it, it can be easy to feel like that doesn't really make much of a difference when it comes to product availability or care information or any of these things. But that alone kind of sets off this chain where all of the subsequent information is gonna be viewed from through that lens. And we're also going to find ourselves in a situation where the studies that are being done, the research that's being conducted is actually restricted because of this. So, I mean, I suppose the first factor that plays into this is that there just really are very few safe options for treatment for chickens this is also of course impacted by the lack of research and the lack of studies particularly for pet chicken keepers so because chickens are often classified you know as just a food producing animal there's not only legislation in place that prevents certain things from being used certain treatments from being given to them but there's also absolutely no money as of right now really to be made in developing new treatments or studying these things studying side effects well,
0: that's- That's because 99% of chicken keepers are not seeking to get a full life expectancy out of their bird, right?
1: Right. The pet keeping uh, hobby is really very new. And so historically, the only concern that anyone really had when it came to chicken care is keeping them alive up to the point of processing, or in the case of laying hens, doing things like preventing pecking injuries in close quarters. Um, there was really just no interest in looking into like health um, when it comes to longevity. There was no interest in looking into, for instance, how to treat internal parasites that they would never be exposed to in that factory farm setting. They don't go outside. So you're not going to wind up dealing with the same things as a backyard keeper does. And for so many pet keepers, veterinary care is either inaccessible or simply unaffordable. And even if it is
0: accessible, oftentimes even that is strongly biased towards you know, that livestock mentality.
1: Right, exactly. So the depth of experience that they have in trading for things is going to be really limited. you You really have
0: to find yourself like an avian vet, someone who specializes in birds.
1: Right. And so where we're starting at, really, is that we've got this animal that the only interest that has historically existed has been in keeping them alive and healthy enough to process and sell, you know, for meat in stores, or keeping them in good enough condition to continue producing eggs.
0: So in... You know, I think it's important to mention that, you know, for hens, that might only be two or three years. Right, in most cases. for for roosters, for meat birds...
1: Yeah, about four months usually would be processing time. And so this is the thing, you know, we have a lot of information on what is required for like calcium needs. We have a lot of information on things like feed efficiency, um, what to feed them to minimize the amount that they need to eat. Um, But all of this stuff is very, very heavily driven through a lens of resource, not a companion animal. And when it comes to roosters, the situation is actually far more dire because, again, in the meat industry, they might be allowed to live, you know, just those four months, but we're never going to see anything in terms of like heart issues or, you know, gout developing from eating excess calcium. We don't really um, have a lot of information on what goes into giving them a long life because they're never planned to have one in the first place. The birds who are born into the laying industry and wind up being male are gone rid of immediately. Um, They don't even make it past a day or two old. So there's just really zero interest in this topic. And unfortunately, that leaves keepers in a really tricky situation because we really kind of are flying blind. We're having to rely on not only just the personal experience of other keepers, but further that's been restricted to things that are not tested and not studied. And often things that were never intended to be used on chickens in the first place. It's kind of a MacGyver situation where we're just taking the things that we hope if we throw enough stuff at the wall, something's going to stick, and then that gets replicated. So in this day and age, of course, we have a lot of these online communities. We have a lot of places where you can go and you can get seemingly a very fast consensus from a lot of people on what the best option is and what works. Um, but something that I see come up all the time, and I think we've mentioned this before, is that when these questions get asked, they're usually asked in such a brief way. I mean, something literally as simple as, my chicken is sneezing, what do I do? Um, And then it's followed up by just a ton of people coming in and giving essentially a diagnosis based on (laughs) nothing but that. I've seen cases where you know someone says that their chicken threw up and it's the middle of summer and there's all these people saying that they've got sour crop or that they've got some other serious condition and I'll come in and I'll ask okay well what had the bird been doing just prior to this are they showing any other signs of illness uh, take note of the season it's summer have they been hot is it hot where you live and sure enough they come back and they confirm that just prior to this they had been drinking a ton of water it's roasting where they are and no they haven't shown any other symptoms and it was just one time and it hasn't happened since and of course you know if you've looked into crop function and all of these things it's not uncommon for a bird to drink a lot lean over and sort of leak that back out Um, so nothing horrible is going on here but you've got people saying you know to tip them upside down and force them to throw up to clear out the crop and to put you know monostat down their beak and all of these things that, you know, maybe with something like the monostat in the right situation would be the right course of action, but not when the bird just had a lot of water. You know, so we get into these situations where these common questions that come up there develops this sort of echo chamber. If a bird has scabs, it's fowl pox. If a bird is coughing, it's respiratory infection. If a bird has discharge from their eye, it's always going to be some horrible, you know, infectious thing that you have to either. you know, call them or remove them from the flock and nobody really seems to take into consideration all of those lesser explanations like they may have just gotten something in their eye. Is it dusty? Are they seeing any other respiratory symptoms? And so as enough people see this, it becomes kind of the go-to answer. It's just they've seen other people give that information with that same symptom present and so they start jumping to conclusions and assuming that that must be the answer here too. Of course, everyone wants to be helpful. So you get a lot of people coming in attempting to give useful advice, but really oftentimes misleading and neglecting to gather sufficient information to actually weigh in.
0: I mean, I would say that's even a stretch to call that pseudoscience. I mean, um, so many of people's experiences are based on limited observation. You know, they don't even know themselves what really went on or what you know, multiple factors might have contributed to that or not contributed to it. Um, it could have been something simple and they did a treatment and it didn't need the treatment and so it got better anyway. Um, and they think <laughs> that, you know what they did is the reason why.
1: Right. I've seen that too. Things like people saying that they did some kind of treatment for dry fowl pox and that it cured it, you know, and if you understand the virology behind fowl pox, there isn't a treatment for that, but it's entirely possible to spend enough time doing things that are actually having no impact for it to resolve on its own. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this stuff really is very misleading and it becomes a very serious problem because it gives this false idea of consensus. And in actuality, you know, it's like I often will tell people, you would never go into the doctor's office and say, my stomach feels bad. Why? Give me a drug. Um, they're going to ask you so many follow-up questions about that. They're going to want to know how long it's been happening, if there's anything else that's been going on. Is it a sharp pain, dull pain, nauseous pain? Um... There's just gonna be so many elements that need to be evaluated there for them to even begin to get on track for what needs to be done to correct it. And the bottom line is when we're looking at any other people's experiences online and the advice being given to them or seeking it ourselves, there's going to be all of those same information requirements. It is a diagnosis. Um, it's not a preferable one and it's certainly not the best one, but that is what we're asking. We're asking for people to help confirm what's wrong Um, So if you see people who have given virtually no information and they're getting answers from people, it's pretty safe to dismiss literally every answer they've been given because nobody in that dialogue has enough information to have an educated opinion in the first place. If you really want to know what is going on with the bird, definitely always be sure to provide as much detail as possible, you know, diet, housing, recent changes anything you can think of that might be factoring in. And even then, it's really important to understand that a lot of people are still going to jump to conclusions. A lot of people are going to kind of gloss over that. And they're just going to go with sort of, I guess you could say the party line, the thing that they think is the most common explanation based on just the input they've seen from other people in that community.
0: Or perhaps their opinion, once again, going back to this livestock mentality that Whatever the problem may be, whether it's diagnosed or not, um, it may not be worth the time, effort, or money to correct it or treat it.
1: Right. Unfortunately, these days, we do have, you know, some better options that do exist. Um, those traditional ones that we frequently come across are driven by maybe, you know, just a lack of a desire to treat it in a better way. But also, you know, historically, really a serious lack of options. It was a situation where you just kind of had to do what works regardless of any negative side effects. You know, we've got things still to this day like, Blue coat is a wonderful example of something that has been used for a really long time. In fact, it's usually about the only justification I've seen people make for continuing to use it is that it's been done for ever and how could there possibly be a problem? Um, but as other, Related studies into certain ingredients in that product have been conducted. It's been found to be carcinogenic. It's been banned actually now in a few different countries. But unfortunately, at least in the US, it can still be sold in stores. It doesn't need to have a warning attached to it. I believe it does have a lifetime egg withdrawal. Um, It's something that we opted not to use as soon as we confirmed that there was any kind of a cancer-causing element going on there, but it is something that a lot of times people have no idea what that drawback might be. And so all we're really looking at in a lot of these questions is, does it accomplish what we're trying to accomplish? But because we have so little information, oftentimes it is subjecting the animal to an even greater risk or a completely separate risk that we're not trying to bring on.
0: And I guess that's not to say that, you know, it doesn't have its place, that, you know, it wouldn't be the lesser of two evils in a certain scenario. Um, I just think that so often it's it's a go-to when, in fact, it should maybe be weighed a little heavier than, than it is. Um, there may be other options that are just as convenient, just as available, just as cheap, um, that will do the same thing, have the same result, but with fewer risks to the bird.
1: Right, exactly. And that's the thing is you can't even weigh that lesser of two evils uh, question unless you have all the information on what it is that you're getting into. Um, And so that's the biggest problem here really is that those warnings aren't given. Um, For instance, something that came up for us recently, we had a bird with a crack in her beak. And it was in a position and it looked to be the sort of situation where if it wasn't stabilized and if it was allowed to be worsened, it could have wound up extending and compromising her beak to the point that she could have lost her ability to eat. So this was one of those situations where we really needed to do something about this and we needed to do something quickly. And I have given this information um, that I'm about to share to other keepers, but always with heavy disclaimers. Um, but what we wound up doing was pay, taking a piece of tea bag, something that we did find online, and using a gel super glue to very, very, very carefully create a splint over that crack. Now, the thing is, when you come across this information online, oftentimes it's literally just, "Oh, take a piece of tea bag and just super glue it onto the beak to hold it in place." But they don't give all of the warnings about, for instance, that those fumes are incredibly caustic. They don't give warnings that it's important to use a gel versus a liquid because the liquid is going to be much more prone to dripping down and doing things like gluing their beak shut or gluing their tongue to the roof of their mouth. They don't let you know that you're going to need to confirm that that break isn't clean through the hard palate, the roof of the mouth there, because if it is, it's going to drip down directly into their mouth. So there's all of these cautions and all of these... Measures that you can take to use even those in a pinch, not the best option, uh, solutions safely, but just that shallow explanation that's often given can lead to a lot of really serious problems. Yeah,
0: I mean, that, that procedure wound up being so surgical in nature, you know, um, to not use too much of the the tea bag so that it was creating an obstruction or an unnecessary thing on her beak, uh, to not use too much super glue on it, you know, just enough. And then having to use tweezers to place that and not have it stick to the tweezers and then also <laughs> do this on a bird that doesn't want to be restrained you know while you're doing this to them like she was even uh, trying to peck at the piece of tea bag and it's like it, it it wound up so difficult and complicated and when that sort of level of detail and instruction isn't given I can imagine many people you know going into it winging it and not having you know perhaps a, a particular background that would set them up to do that so precisely and carefully I mean, I, I never worked in the field, but I went to paramedic school for, for three years and you know, so I have that, that background at least and that knowledge and and if if somebody isn't thinking along those lines, you know, they're maybe gonna cut the piece bigger and use more super glue and just lay it on there. You know, another thing too that we that we wound up thinking about on our own that wasn't even part of the instructions we found was allowing a small spot at the bottom of the of the crack for drainage. Right. You know, when <clears throat> yeah. when that immune response kicks in and there's any like fluid buildup mm-hmm. under the beak, um, that has to have somewhere to go. And if you use too much of the tea bag, too much super glue, and seal that off, that can build up and lead to infection.
1: Right. And even as careful as we were, there was a risk that that could have gone badly. It could have become an infection. It could have had. All kinds of things go wrong. Um, So it's really, it's one of those things that I always hesitate to tell people never, ever do this. I think in your if you're in a situation where the bird could literally be handicapped for the rest of their life, be getting tube fed, if they're even kept alive at that point at all, um, I think in that case, it may be justified to take that risk. But with extreme caution and with a lot of attention to detail.
0: Or take them to a vet.
1: Right. But then we're back to,
0: you know, (laughs) cost and availability, access to someone who's experienced with birds specifically. um, And that can be you know, potentially impossible for somebody.
1: Right, exactly. And that's the thing is, you know, this argument, this question really comes down to two sides, one of which is being driven sort of by necessity of just go ahead and just do whatever might work and hope for the best um, in these situations, which unfortunately, you know, you can do with chickens. They are classified as livestock. No one's going to come banging on your door or hauling you into court for doing something um, painful or reckless in treating them as they would maybe a cat or a dog, but the other side of the argument is, well, take them to a vet, right? And it's always said as though it's that easy, as though just get up, get in the car, and just go get them help. But the problem, of course, is as probably a lot of you listening know, it's not actually that easy always to just go to a vet. Oftentimes, you don't have any vets in your area who will even accept a chicken. You call and you beg and you plead and they say, nope, sorry, we don't deal with chickens here. Or maybe you just simply can't afford the cost of the procedure that they're going to charge because they're expensive. These,
0: yeah. Or sometimes these things happen you know, after business hours or on the weekend. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's true. And maybe they have an emergency line and maybe they're willing to squeeze you in. But the fact of the matter is a lot of vets are just not going to go that far out of their way. Either because they aren't interested in doing so, they don't think that they're going to stand to make enough off of that time spent, or frankly they sometimes just don't feel like it makes any sense to do it. Um, Coming back, you know, kind of again to this livestock classification, and a lot of people will fault the vets in this situation, you know, um, claiming that they should be more receptive, they should be more open to seeing other animals and not be so tunnel vision on cats and dogs, but again, you know, like most things when it comes to keeping, it's really not quite that simple because when vets go to veterinary school, they're going to be trained on the animals that they're most likely to encounter. If they want to learn to do something like treat chickens, that's additional study, it's additional education, additional tuition, and they're not going to take that on unless they know that it's going to be something they can use. So given how few people are even willing to take a chicken to the vet, you know, we'd basically be asking them to put in additional, you know, additional time, additional debt in studying that and wind up quite possibly never once having to rely on it and never needing it. So it's all kind of tangled up in this, you know, that a lot of vets really would like to help, but they're being honest when they say, I can't see chickens. It's not, I don't want to, it's, I'm not qualified. I don't have the training and I don't have the experience or the knowledge to help them. So this becomes really, really tricky.
0: I will say that, you know, maybe the next best thing is, like we said earlier, an avian vet, someone who does specialize in pet birds. Um, Because there are plenty of those, you know, lots of people have pet birds, parrots and parakeets and and the like, Mm -hmm. and not a ton, but many vets do um, get into that sort of specialty. And there are a lot of parallels between different bird species. So it may not be, you know, a perfect one-to-one, but that's going to be the next best option.
1: Right. It's going to be better than nothing because they're at least trained broadly on avians. So it's something that I always recommend that people do if they call their family vet, you know, that they see for their dog and they turn them down. Try looking for exotic vets, anyone who's willing to treat pet birds, parrots.
0: Even reptiles.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, They're usually going to have at least a bit of training in a much more diverse range of species. Now, there's still, you know, the issue of whether or not you can afford that treatment. So really, truly, a lot of keepers are in a position where it's let the bird just struggle, euthanize, or, you know, that's about it in some cases, or use these methods that are really kind of just winging it. Um, but at the same time, like, even if you go to the vet, they're going to be forced to rely oftentimes on things like off-label medications. So this, again, comes back to the industry-driven research and product availability. There is absolutely no money to be made by the farming industry, by at least the um, Mass produce, you know, the factory farm industry in treating things like tapeworms is a, a perfect example that we've had experience with. There is literally no tested and approved drug on the market for treating chicken tapeworms. Every single one is going to be off label. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, hold on a second, because isn't there one in particular that is supposed to be effective? And Yes, there is one that is no longer effective. (laughs) I'm not even going to put the name out there because I don't want anyone going and trying to use it and wasting time and money doing that. Um, But if you do a quick search on it, you'll find, you know, the one FDA approved treatment for tapeworms. And if you search even further, you'll find that because of resistance issues, that is no longer effective either. So the only thing that I'm aware of at the moment that's effective against that would be Zemectrin gold which is designed for horses. So we're taking a horse medication, a highly concentrated horse medication, and administering it to, you know, a five to eight pound bird in most cases, which is terrifying enough on its own. It also does have a fairly narrow toxicity margin. Um, So we find ourselves kind of just having to bite the bullet and do these things, not out of negligence, but because there's just really no better option.
0: And we're relying on, you know, uh individuals in the community with their experience to judge what dosage to give. Um, you know, chickens and birds in general mm-hmm. have, you know, a faster metabolism and they process different things differently, obviously, than a horse, differently than a human, mm-hmm. differently than other animals that these drugs are approved for. Um, and, you know, we end up just having to make our best guess or rely on somebody else's best guess that may or may not have worked for... A number of reasons that they may or may not be aware of.
1: Right. Well, when we first started researching, you know, the Zobectrin gold, I was lucky enough to get in contact with somebody who had broad experience and had used it and was being very detailed in the instructions they were giving. But the vast majority of times that I see that recommended, people are indicating give a pea-sized amount. That's... All the information on dosage they give, pea size. They don't seek to confirm whether the keeper has a bantam breed, a Brahma, um, none of this. And of course it matters. It matters tremendously. (laughs) Right, what size of pea? Um, So there are dosages, there are actual specific by pound dosages that you can find, but it is like a needle in a haystack tracking them down. Um, And even when the explanation sounds really, really logical, um, I'm thinking now of meloxicam, something that a lot of keepers have had to rely on for pain management or uh, treatment of inflammation. It's a very, very commonly prescribed drug and is frequently used in chickens. But I've seen cases of that being overdosed to the point that the chicken dies of it. And it's because a great number of vets um, may not be aware that that has, again, these interesting toxicity concerns where it's really one of the only drugs that is used in chickens that can't be overdosed. And if you ask why it is that the dose of this is maybe being recommended at such a high rate,
0: just to clarify real quick, it can be overdosed and it often is overdosed, just to say it shouldn't be overdosed. Right As in other medications, chickens require a higher dosage than a mammal for example. Um, but this drug, meloxicam, should not be multiplied in its dosage due to their their metabolism. Right.
1: There's this common guideline, which is absolutely accurate, that you have to increase dosages because of their fast metabolism. And this applies in almost all cases. The issue is that meloxicam has some incredibly concerning heart-related side effects if given in excess. So it's a very weird and rare case where it's better to give the weaker amount and maybe have it be a bit less effective than it is to chance those drawbacks if you give it in the amount that would normally be advised for a chicken. And you'll hear very educated people, you know, come in and say that this is perfectly fine, and oh no, no, it has to be a really high amount because they're a chicken, without recognizing that there is a particular concern with this specific drug. And again, if you dig around enough, you will find this information, but even in the cases where the um, advice and the support being offered for that advice is very compelling, we can still have these problems.
0: So, you know, to put it generally, when, when you're seeking information, you really have to be skeptical to such a high degree. You know, you have to become your own researcher, your own doctor, um, or rather your, your own chicken's doctor, mm-hmm. um, and, and do that research. You know, you can't just take the first result on Google. Um, please don't yeah. ever take the first result yeah. on Google. Um, furthermore, even when you find a piece of information that, like you said, sounds and looks, for all intents and purposes, uh, trustworthy, still be skeptical. You have to find out for yourself how they came to that conclusion. You need to do additional research, you know, look up studies and um, and and papers published in you know medical journals um look to other species research in species uh other bird species research in humans even um you, you kind of need to do your own education as far as like you know anatomy and physiology and learn how certain things are interacting with other things in a body so you have a better understanding of why somebody is advising this for this reason um I don't know, it just, it's so much more complicated than I ever thought it would be.
1: Yeah, well, and when we started out, you know, we were expecting that it would be as simple as just, you know, searching for that answer. I just do a quick search. What's the best kind of bedding to use in the coop? You know, and it's really only because I have a tendency to be more paranoid about these things that we started doing a bunch of searches to just try to absolutely double and triple check. And we started finding that so many things that are used all the time and regarded as harmless really, truly aren't. Um, There's decent reason to believe that pine Shavings have some of the same concerns, not as severe, but at least some of the same concerns as cedar shavings, which, of course, have aromatic oils that can cause irritation and are never recommended for use in a chicken coop.
0: It mm, um, can cause things like long term scarring in the lungs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I see them being recommended uh, pretty regularly
1: right or like diatomaceous earth is another one you know we picked up diatomaceous earth we picked up blue coat and thankfully found all of the concerning information about it before we ever had a need for it so it's still sitting there in our laundry room unopened i guess i hate to throw something away intact but it'll never be used because it's just not worth that risk we've had to basically you know implement workarounds we've done things like add food coloring blue food coloring to, you know, an antibiotic ointment to apply to an injury. It has the same color masking effects, although I question how effective that actually is. Um, we haven't done it regularly. But there always really are workarounds for this. And it may not always be convenient to access those or to identify them but we've at least found that it's absolutely worth the peace of mind and the ability to avoid all of those other related problems I mean we had to jump through so many hoops to get the right kind of sand for our coop because it was literally the only option we could find that didn't have some kind of a health or safety concern
0: yeah when we're looking into that you know there there isn't at least as far as we could find there isn't a Readily available bagged sand option that you could get at Home Depot or even any of the nurseries or garden garden centers that we that we could find. Um, we ended up having to go to the local quarry where they have you know the different minerals and gravel and sand and and this particular sand that they offered is just called construction sand and it's used in masonry and creating concrete. Um, but it was the only thing that is coarse enough to not create a respiratory issue um, and is washed naturally with just water and no chemicals. And those were like the two main factors that we were we were looking for in a bedding,
1: right and having enough diversity in the grains to avoid clumping and creating blockages in the crop if they eat it you know and same thing there if you go online you're going to see plenty of people saying oh i've used play sand for years and i've never had a problem and that can be true and it can still be unsafe because that's not going to be an issue unless the bird actually chooses to eat any amount of that sand, if they start using it as a grit source or something, and
0: we all, as we all know, you know, chickens are all individuals, and some of them can be pretty weird. <laughs>
1: <laughs> very true. They're very unpredictable. So you know, you never assume that your chicken isn't going to do an insane or a natural thing. Um, we've all seen how they respond to styrofoam, so you know, or people saying that they know what to eat and what not to eat. You know, in some cases, yes; in other cases, no. Um, so it's really a lot like, you know, having a young human child. Never assume that it's not going to be a problem. Always look first for the ways in which it could be, and then look for options that avoid those dangers.
0: You know, that makes me think of another example of things that you would think a chicken would know better than to eat. However, (laughs) there's so many examples out there, and very easy to find, these stories of chickens who eat nails and screws and staples and bits of metal or glass. Um, you know, they're allowed access to, you know, a garage or workshop or, you know, just free ranging. That stuff just happens to blow in from unknown sources. And again, a lot of people will make the claim that they'll be just fine, that, you know, they can they can process and digest a metal screw. And the fact of the matter is, is that if that's what happened with their bird, they got very lucky. And it was only because of luck that it didn't do something more severe like perforate you know their crop perforate or puncture you know an Mm -hmm. internal organ Um, so so many other stories you find um, keepers who have actually gone and had a necropsy done or x-rays done while the bird is still alive but suffering and you know come to find there's a bundle of screws in their gizzard and you know that's that just can't possibly be something they could deal with and be okay with.
1: Right. Oftentimes it leads to hardware disease, actually, is what it's called. Um, And that's kind of a slow progression thing. So it's entirely possible, especially in the case of roosters, they might be taken by a predator, lost to some kind of heart failure or, you know, other Reasons far before those symptoms would ever develop. Um, But again, you know, nobody's situation is exactly like each of ours. You know, we've all got our own goals, our own concerns, our own aims for how healthy and how long we want to keep these boys around or our girls. Um, And a lot of this really, really does rely on that. You can't take the advice of somebody who's planning on just getting rid of their rooster in six months saying, oh, well, I haven't had any problems. Um, it's really, really important to make sure that you confirm that the people that you're talking to are on the same page, they're working towards the same things, and they're asking the right questions. You know, any time that someone comes in and says, oh, this is fine because I've never had problems, or that's not a problem because they're acting like they're just fine. I mean, shoot, just the other day I came across a post someone had made they were um holding, and if you... Don't want any images put in your mind of any kind of graphic injuries to birds. Um, Just skip ahead, maybe like, I don't know, I'm going to have to guess here, probably like 15 seconds or so. Uh, In three, two, one, this keeper was holding the bird by their legs um, on camera. The bird looked utterly horrified and they had apparently been gotten by a dog. They had had their wing ripped off to the point that their wing bone was sticking out completely exposed about four inches. Um, Hopefully this is a safe point for anyone who skipped to come back in. But the bottom line here is that the way that they were depicting this was that the bird was eating and drinking and seemed, quote, Fine. um, And this is not something that you would ever come across in any species other than chickens. I can't even imagine someone going to a dog forum with a similar situation and going, well, they're eating and drinking and they seem fine. Is it okay to just see what happens? Um, No, that is a medical emergency. That is going to be a systemic bone infection in very short order if it isn't already, not to mention that the suffering and pain that's being experienced in that situation is astronomical. Um, So when we see things like this, sadly, it's a really, really clear indicator that there is a serious disconnect in a lot of members of the community when it comes to what is appropriate, what is responsible, what that animal is experiencing in That process. Um, This is the number one thing that makes me raise an eyebrow when anyone tries to say, oh, they're fine, they don't mind this, it's not a big deal, it doesn't bother them. Um, If we can look at a situation like the one I just described, and anyone out there is going to, um, (laughs) with confidence or comfort, describe that as seeming fine, you know, we've got a serious problem here.
0: And, you know, all of this isn't to say that we have all the answers, you know, we try and do our best to give advice and point people in the right direction. But all of this said, you know, if if you ever get advice from us, we strongly urge you to do further research as well and make sure what we're saying applies to your situation and that we haven't missed anything because we are fallible too.
1: <laughs> right. Well, absolutely. That's one of the things I always tell people is do not just take my word for it. Go confirm, verify, you know, see if there's any other questions that you think of that you need to ask, and I will do my best to answer them. Um, it's always going to be a process of independent research, unfortunately, just because of the situation being what it is. Such um, often misguided consensus stuff um stuff like dipping their legs in gasoline you know to treat for scaly leg mites sure it might work but don't for an instant believe that that's good for the bird or that it's the best option and if you care about your bird as a pet and you don't want to do anything that would expose them to discomfort or harm unnecessarily always have that on the back burner of your mind that a lot of people out there are not taking this into consideration um even vets I hear so many stories of people having to practically fight with their vets to get medical care just because the vet feels like it doesn't make any sense. It's easier to just euthanize. Um, It's going to cost money or take time to help them recover. It's just such a radically different perspective. Um, So one piece of advice I always give to people is when you come across any recommendation when it comes to chicken care, ask yourself if this is something you would ever entertain for a cat or a dog. If this is not the way that you would go about treating a cat or a dog, (laughs) if you would be horrified to see that recommendation made for any other species, there is a very good chance you should reject it out of hand for this one. I can't think of a single thing that could be recommended for chickens that is an appropriate or compassionate uh, treatment option that would generate that kind of shock or outrage with another animal. There may be things that wouldn't make sense with another animal because of just Individual physiology, different species. But, you know, things like in the case of a very grievous injury, just, you know, rinsing it off with saline, spraying it a few times a day and seeing how it goes, you're just never going to see that recommended for anything else. You know, even horses, I'd frankly be shocked if even cattle um, were regarded with such a yeah, dismissive attitude, likely just because they're far more expensive to replace. You know, I really do think that yeah. there is an element of Seeing chickens as sort of disposable and just easy to get another one—not much of an inconvenience.
0: Well, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of that is driven by a lack of connection. Um, the keepers who who view it that way typically don't take the time to see and get to know the the personalities of the chickens, and you know, come to love them. And that's that's really the difference. So, you know, if if you love your animals of any species chickens included definitely be skeptical of the information you're seeing you know it makes me think of another example just because someone is popular or a certain um a certain piece of advice is popular just because it's on tiktok and has a million views it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do you know one of these things that i see way too often and getting repeated by other you know quote content creators on tiktok and youtube is uh holding the bird on its back. They, so many people are claiming it calms them down. It makes them, you know, docile and, and, oh, they love it. They just fall asleep. And it's actually suffocating them. Like, you know, the, the chicken's lungs are on their back and they don't have a diaphragm to, to open and close them. So when they're on their back, they're, the weight of their organs is pressing down on their lungs. And they're literally like holding their breath or, you know, suffocating. And You know, if you happen to turn them back over quick enough, they may not die, but I guarantee you there's a lot of people out there not admitting that they did that and wound up with a dead chicken.
1: Right, that's a very fair point, because you see a lot of people saying, oh, well, it's not a problem, and meaning, of course, that they didn't die. Um, but of course, it's still going to be a very unpleasant and stressful experience for the animal. Um, and their responses are misleading. You know, as we've talked about before, you really can't assume that they're going to react the way a human would to these things. Um, it's like you see on TikTok quite a lot, the idea of drawing a line, holding them to the ground, and drawing a line, and they get hypnotized is what it's often depicted as. Um What's actually going on is something called tonic immobility, which is a very, very severe fear response. It's They're essentially going into a catatonic shutdown state because they feel, for whatever reason, like death is imminent. And tonic immobility is something that has been widely studied. There's a great deal of information on it. But to just look at the video, you know, from a human lens, it really looks like just a silly thing. Oh, those goofy chickens lying there for no reason. Um, if something seems that odd probably there's something more going on (laughs) you know it's usually a red flag and it's worth further investigation Um, Mm. if it looks like it's just something very very quirky I always take that as a sign to kind of try to figure out what's actually happening and usually it's not very pleasant whatever it is
0: Definitely. just wanted to reiterate you know don't believe everything you see um, whether that's from us or from some popular tiktoker or youtuber um, and I just really want to ask this of you, of you all, you know, if you have the opportunity, if you can take, take the time to do so, one of the biggest ways you could help the, the world of chickens, you know, out there is to call these people out. Um, please do leave a comment on their, on their videos. Let them know what they apparently don't know or what they're refusing to acknowledge. Um, It's dangerous for so many birds, and the fact that it just gets millions of views and likes and shared around is making the problem so much worse
1: right and you might be if you do that you might meet some resistance you're probably going to have a few people come in and try to say that you're overreacting or you know question that but something that I always try to remember is how many silent readers are out there for every one person who tries to argue or um, get combative about these kinds of points there's going to be quite a few more who just happened across it saw it and took it upon themselves to look it up and become educated so a lot of times those people are not there to get into the mix. They're not there really to engage. They're just there to learn. And you're not really going to see much evidence of them. But they are out there. And I've had plenty of situations in which they reach out to me privately, you know, through a direct message saying, thank you so much for mentioning this. Um, It can be a really hostile community out there. And a lot of people aren't very interested in putting a target on their back, you know, by uh, jumping in and picking sides. They'd rather just kind Kind of keep to the sidelines but they are watching they are listening and they are receptive
0: and you know let's be fair you know if if you've done this you know we're not we're not judging you again um, so much information out there just can't necessarily be trusted and it, it's very easy to to be convinced by something that hasn't been studied enough or looked into enough by the person sharing it um, so we're not holding that against any of you if you have held your chicken on its back um, but moving forward, I, I think it's fair to say that we all, knowing that information now, would choose a different option.
1: Right, definitely. Well, and I would actually make the case that the people in that situation who have done this, probably the only mistake they've really made is just kind of having too good of a heart in a lot of cases, um, just not even considering the fact that there yeah. could be such um, such a callous attitude driving a lot of this stuff, that there could be such a lack of care behind it. I think a lot of people go in really expecting that they can trust the information they're given to be good and compassionate and would never even entertain the fact that it might be so badly misrepresented.
0: That is fair. I don't think any of any of the YouTubers or TikTokers that are sharing this are doing so maliciously. I don't think they're out to kill chickens. Um, I think that they believe that they are doing something really nice for for their chicken, that they're helping them calm down or making them real comfy and and that's giving them time to bond with them. Um, it, I just hate to think of all of the people who try this and wind up with a dead bird in their arms and maybe they have no idea why and and they don't even link it to that.
1: Right. Or just the heartbreak of knowing that they've been put through a stressful situation like that, even when your intentions are good. I mean, I've been in the position of making people aware of that concern, you know, always so that they can avoid any kind of tragedy in the future. Um, It's always I just want to be sure that you know that this can be a dangerous thing. And I've talked to so many people who are just devastated to hear that, who immediately say I'm never doing that again I would never chance that I had no idea and it's horrible because like it's better than just letting it continue it's better than keeping quiet and potentially they lose that bird one of these times but it's heartbreaking for them to know that they were the cause of that experience on the bird's part, especially when this is a pet animal and you've gone so far out of your way to be reliable and trustworthy and caring towards them. So that's really the only part of the situation that ever makes me mad is these people who have such good intentions and are new to the hobby and they're counting on the other people out there to give them reliable advice. and then they don't get it and they wind up making these mistakes and find themselves in a terrible situation and it's hard honestly even to fault the people giving the bad advice because it is so limited out there and there is such a strange consensus simply because everyone has seen everyone else recommend it everyone has seen everyone else recommend it and it's just become the go to you know so it's a weird situation where it's like maybe nobody's really at fault it's just a bad combination of factors at yeah. play that's well, still so important to be aware of.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we've we've experienced that ourselves. You know, we've not only made mistakes based on bad information, we've um, moved forward with certain decisions um, that led to problems that we didn't foresee. And had we maybe thought of it or thought through it a little bit better, you know, ahead of time, we, we might have seen those things coming. Um, one thing that, you know, I, I don't have a better answer for even to this day, but you know, the use of hardware cloth, which, you know, in order to predator proof your coop and run, um, so many people recommend the use of hardware cloth and, you know, I, I would probably still recommend using it as well versus other options, um, as far as predator proofing. However, um, it has been the cause of multiple injuries to our Mm -hmm. birds, um, the cracked beak, which we referenced earlier, uh, was due to hardware cloth. She got her beak in there trying to peck at a plant on the outside, and when she tried to pull back, it was at the wrong angle, and that's how that happened. We've seen toenails just come right off because they were running away from another chicken and, like, you know, jumped off of the hardware cloth, Mm -hmm. and this can happen with the quarter-inch hardware cloth or the half-inch hardware cloth, and, you know, I... I wish that there was a better solution and, and, if you have one, please share it with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, but.
1: and that's the thing, you know, we had mentioned about, you know, doing a search for more information on any of this stuff. Um, I'm in the habit, every single new thing that we consider using or trying, I will do searches for that thing with the word danger, that thing with the word safe, that thing with the word harmful. So if we're looking at switching, you know, for instance, to horse pellet bedding, I'm going to do searches for horse pellet dangerous for chickens, horse pellet safe for chickens. Um, and read absolutely everything I can find on that, basically just looking for any reports from other keepers of times where it did cause some kind of problem. From there you can evaluate, see if it might have just been um, a misattribution, that maybe that wasn't really what did it. It's time-consuming and the disheartening thing that you find is that 99% of things that you search that way, you're gonna find some danger. There are dangers to having hay in the coop, there are dangers to using using diatomaceous earth. There are dangers to using certain kinds of sand. There are dangers to heating the coop. There can be dangers to not heating the coop. so it always boils down to again kind of this lesser of two evils thing, but you really do always want to make sure that you know which evils you're choosing between. That's really the big thing um, because it's gonna be a personal decision. You know, we've chosen not to heat our coop because we happen to live in a warm climate. It doesn't get horribly cold based on the breeds we're keeping. We were able to make an informed decision there, and we haven't had any issues from that decision either. Someone somewhere else, you know, who sees the warnings about cooped. Fires, may want to go the route of looking into how to prevent that hazard, because maybe they'd need to heat their coop. Maybe they're in a really cold climate and they're keeping something that can't properly insulate, like a frizzle or something. So it's there's really never going to be one right answer, but there's going to be a lot of potential bad information that you have to wade through and evaluate and kind of. Become the expert yourself so that you can make a decision that's going to be best for you and your flock.
0: Mm-hmm. And like you said, that that takes a lot of time. And, you know, you you put in <laughs> so much time in, in research, you know, I, I wouldn't be exaggerating to say that over the course of, you know, two years, two and a half years, you, you've put in a few thousand hours, um, you know, a couple hours a day as, as an, an average you know, yeah. across that whole time, some days more, some days less. But um, and then on top of that, you know, the observation of the flocks and and then the engagement with the community. I'm not even counting that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I have in some areas in particular, you know, research to the point where if I try to continue, I wind up just coming back to things that I've already read because there's just literally nothing else. Um, that's usually when I try to pull myself away is <laughs> when <laughs> I see that now I'm just rereading the same forum posts and studies and articles and uh, discussions that I've already poured over. But, you know, it's it's still really worth it. It's intimidating and it can be daunting. And this is really the sort of thing that's going to be Crucial, even if you have a vet, honestly, because you know, we really have found that even the vets oftentimes aren't really sure because they're dealing with a lot of these same restrictions that we are. Um, They don't just have magically better treatment options necessarily, they don't just also have better studies to go off of, they're going off of those same ones. Um, So it's just it's tough all the way around that. We could at least give, you know, maybe a bit of a breakdown, just step-by-step, you know, for getting to the root of the issue, getting the best information to apply, which would start with first just being skeptical. Just because a lot of people are suggesting it does not mean that it's the right way to go about it. Um, you want to go ahead and independently confirm to the best of your ability, you're probably going to find that there's not a lot of formal research. Do what you can, you know, look to the closest species that you can. If you can't find any information there, you know, maybe even I've gone so far as to look up studies in humans, you know, for things like wound healing timelines before, because I couldn't find anything more applicable than that in the moment. Um, you want to consider whether the person who's advising you actually has all the necessary information does your question depend on breeds being kept climate um, whether you're keeping both roosters and hens just roosters All of this, if someone tells you roosters can eat layer feed and it's perfectly fine, um, question what their goals are, question whether they're aware of those complications, Um, question how they would confirm, you know, if that rooster is going to take years to develop problems and he's only a year old. um, Probably a reason to raise red flag there and not trust that to be the correct answer. Um, remember also that you're probably going to find yourself feeling a little biased personally in some cases. It's really hard to see them out in their coop, you know, in the winter when it's cold, it's really tempting to want to do things like provide heating. You don't want to subject them to temperature shock. You don't want to subject them to coop fires in the middle of the night from all the dust getting in those electronic parts. There are some real concerns and it really should come down to sometimes tough love is actually going to be the best and the safest option, but you're going to want to verify that that is the case in your situation. Um, Just remain open-minded and try to prioritize what's going to be the least likely to cause health problems or injuries or any of these things, even if it might be a little less cushy. You know, we've had to deal with this actually with talking about maybe trying to pad our roosts and worrying about is that going to create a habitat for pests You know, they might like to have a cushy surface, you know, to sleep on at night, but if that's going to expose them to parasites that are going to compromise their health, that's where we may have to fall back and say, you know, it may just have to remain wood. Um so if you do take them to the vet if you manage to find a vet and you get in there and that vet is telling you that there's really not anything that can be done to help really push that issue really confirm that they are viewing that bird as the family dog or cat if that is their status to you well, don't assume they're going to know that
0: with you know within your means uh, you know you got to be honest with them about you know what your financial situation is um, and you know, obviously that, that changes from time to time, but, um, that's something that I think they will often assume on your behalf. And you really gotta, like she said, like Sarah said, you gotta mm-hmm. push that and, you know, say, this is my pet. This is my family. This is my child. Um, and, you know, either money's no object or here's my budget. Like, what can we do mm-hmm. to work within this?
1: Definitely. And be careful about saying that they're your child on most of the <laughs> online forums. Um, most people will take that and run with it and you know just really derail the conversation um but yeah absolutely make sure that they know that there is an emotional attachment to this animal that this is not a cost question this is not a matter of i'm not going to spend money if i can replace them for cheaper chickens cost you know Four to, you know, oftentimes maybe eight dollars. like you're not gonna find any medical care that's going to be cheaper than the cost of replacement. Period.
0: even even a fifty dollar chicken, which is expensive, is cheap in the broad scope of pets. So like yeah, um, that's a pretty inexpensive pet.
1: Right. And that $5 chicken can easily become a $300 chicken in one vet visit. So a lot of times the vets really aren't trying to be horrible. They're trying to save you from making what they think is an impractical choice, um, but that isn't their call to make. And it's important to remember and not be shamed out of that. Never let anyone tell you that it's irrational or unreasonable to pursue the best care you can for your animal. Um, and definitely go in there prepared to make that point clear. Um, let Like I said, never assume that they're already working from that perspective, even if they are a vet, and even if they are used to treating family companions. And so the next thing would be, you know, as we mentioned, if you wouldn't do it for a dog or a cat, raise an eyebrow, (laughs) a really, really serious one, Um, because that's probably going to be a good indicator that this is something that's being done out of a lack of concern and not because it's actually the best option. Google those suggestions, do a search, look specifically for any known dangers, contraindications, safety concerns, and make that a branching thing. If you find one, go on to the next thing, look into that, um, pretty much until you feel like you have a solid grasp on the subject and everything that you're weighing, and then make a decision based on that. But all of that said, The best option is always going to be to at least have a set plan in advance and always to try, if possible, to have access to a vet in advance.
0: You know, on that note, having a plan, I think it's a really good idea to, you know, have a cabinet or drawer of supplies at the ready. Um, You don't want to be faced with a, a life-threatening situation and not have a common, you know, thing like, like styptic powder or bandages mm-hmm. or veterson or spray, um, you know, you don't want to be without that when it counts. This actually reminds me of a recent episode on the Crazy Chicken People podcast, which if you haven't checked that out, definitely go check it out. It's a great source of information. Thomas is so clearly passionate about his birds and sharing his experience and information with others to help them have a better experience with their flock. Um, but in this particular episode, you know, he was going over some things that uh, he wished he'd known sooner, um, some things he wished he'd done differently. And on that list is a medical go bag. You know, just a tool bag that he threw some medical supplies in, things that he could have at the ready in case a bird was injured or ill, you know, or in a life-threatening situation. And, you know, it's just something that we definitely highly agree with and highly recommend Um, you do as well. Definitely want to be prepared and have um, the basic necessary supplies at the ready Um, You never want to be scrambling to find something or worse, you know, not have it on hand when you need it.
1: Right, definitely. And I would absolutely echo that recommendation. I mean, he does such a great job of walking that line between adoring his birds. You know, I can Mm -hmm. assure he absolutely understands that emotional connection and where keepers are coming from when they bond with these animals. But he's also incredibly practical. He would not be one to recommend anything that's not going to be in their best interest. And he's got a great track record of knowing where that line is. So as we were just saying, you know, it can be so hard to rely on advice from people who are coming from a totally different perspective yeah check out crazy chicken people he covers rooster hen you know related topics just everything chicken related breeding Um,
0: and hatching yeah
1: yeah exactly very kinds of things broad focus and he's going to be one of those people that you can count on to understand the perspective that you have on it and to be in line with your ideals Absolutely. And I would just add also on the note of the go bag, you know, it's so important to also keep an eye on, you know, things like expiration dates, make a habit of checking over those supplies somewhat regularly, kind of take inventory. You know, we ran into a situation where we needed our styptic powder because one of our boys had snapped off his entire spur and was uh, busily attempting to bleed out in the middle of our kitchen. And we opened the styptic powder and it was solidified because it had been humid recently and the entire container had hardened into one block um we were literally sitting there grinding chunks of it into powder again in our palms as quickly as we could wasn't a fun situation i've definitely made a habit ever since of keeping tabs on making sure that's still powder it's still usable i
0: think it's a good Um, idea to always have an unopened one on hand as well you have your open container that you're that is in use but always expect that that might you know go bad or harden um when you least expect it. So have an unopened one ready.
1: Yeah, we're not even in a very humid area, and we've still been unable to determine exactly what is causing that or any reliable way to prevent it once it's open. So just little things like that to be aware of. So it's a really good practice to kind of go through and get an idea of what are the most common injuries that I might deal with. Am I equipped to deal with something like prolapse? Am I equipped to deal with a beak injury? Am I equipped to deal with a broken blood feather? Um, just these really common things that come up and then from there also start looking into trying to get in contact with the vet It may be a little bit of travel, you might have to call around to multiple places, but if you can possibly have that lined up, you know, you really only stand to gain something by doing that. You don't have to go in. We've had situations come up where we feel comfortable addressing it properly ourselves at home, but we always know that we have that vet on retainer and we have access to them if we find that it's out of our um. You know, capabilities, if something unexpected comes up, we're really never on our own in that situation. And of course, a lot of people will call their regular vet and be told that they won't take them. But some other things that people don't often think to check into would be, you know, like we mentioned, exotic vets are a very good thing to try. See if there is any in your area that might make an exception and get them in and just call around in advance. Let them know, confirm who would take them so that in that emergency, you know who to call. If that fails, you don't have any exotics, you're in a very small town, maybe call your local 4-H because... They're oftentimes going to have at least a traveling, you know, farm vet or something that they work with, and a lot of times they will be willing to give you their name and contact information, and you can get set up with them as someone that they'll work with, too. If that fails, reach out to your local agriculture department, you know, state agricultural department. try to find out if they have a list of people who are near enough to your area that you could get in contact with them if need be. So sometimes going up to those broader organizations that of course are going to have to have somebody they can call on, these are probably going to be people who aren't putting their name out super publicly. You know, it might just be on kind of a only if you're in the know basis, but asking that question can oftentimes get you in contact with them too and set you up with that resource.
0: I would say in addition to those, you know, uh, get yourself into a medically focused group on Facebook as well. Um, you know, something like Chicken Vet Corner. Uh, right. Where, you know, the response time may not always be super great, but, you know, you're at least able to get direct contact from a vet and it's free and, you know, you can trust that information.
1: Right. It's definitely better than nothing. And especially, you know, maybe while you're waiting, maybe you've got a bit of a wait before you can get into the emergency vet visit or while you're still calling around, you can have that question, you know, sitting there and maybe be getting some useful input in the meantime. Do be advised that in those groups, there's oftentimes a large community of just members and relatively few vets. You may hit a day where there are no vets who are actually active right then. You can usually label your question to address only vets or people who are approved to advise by the group, and that can help. It will also reduce, of course, the amount of input you get and how quickly you get it. Um, But just know those distinctions that if you don't specify and someone comes in and gives input, never hesitate to ask, are you a vet? Are you an approved contributor? And make sure that you know who it is you're talking to and their level of experience. I would also highly recommend joining those groups before you need them. It can take Mm -hmm. a while to get approved and you do not want to be in a crisis sitting there waiting for your membership request to go through so that you can try to get some help. Um, So this is a, you know, do an advance thing, get those supplies in order, get those contacts in order, and do as much research as you can before it ever comes up. And that's really going to empower you to be in a position to handle things confidently, compassionately, and effectively if and when they happen.
0: I would also say, you know, possibly veterinary medical textbooks would be a great resource to have on hand as well.
1: Well, and actually on that note, the Merck's veterinary manual is online. They have a website that's searchable. So if you need to know about, you know, how to treat, um, I don't know how to treat something like a respiratory infection you can go and you can search keywords and you can see different articles that have been written that they're featuring you can see different guidance the qualifications of the vet who compiled that information um, all of that and that's merck's m-e-r-c-k apostrophe s Veterinary Manual. If you do search for that, it should be about the first thing to come up, um, and it's basically what would have been, you know, maybe a paper publication, but it's going to be in an online searchable format. There's no cost to use this. It's just a searchable database, and one that should be very reliable. You should be able to trust whatever information you find there. And of course, there's also a lot of books that you can order online, too. You know, you can go and actually get those paper publications and have them on hand, read them when you've got a bit of free time, you know, maybe when you're sitting out, just being around your flock, um, pick a subject, pick an illness, read about it, do a little bit of additional research, and just kind of gradually start building up that database yourself. And you'll find yourself also much more confident going into those online discussions and being able to quickly evaluate whether what's being said has any merit or doesn't definitely another resource that i could highly recommend would be the bitchin chickens blog um, b-i-t-c-h-i-n chickens and that is run by claire who we have worked with uh, for quite a while, just back and forth, kind of writing some articles for her to feature and know well enough to say that she puts an immense amount of time into the research she does. She has incredibly high standards to only publish um, information that she has personally verified that she can stand behind. She has personal contact with a very, very skilled vet who does a lot of care of chickens and has been able to work directly with her to confirm these things, to make sure the information she's putting out there's sound. So could definitely uh, reassure that that would be a trustworthy source. I would feel perfectly comfortable taking the advice of, you know, pretty much anything I read on her website, whether it's uh, treatment dosages or the way that diseases progress or effective preventatives, you're going to be able to count on the information you find there. And, of course, Thomas's Crazy Chicken People podcast is going to be a great resource for all of just the kind of general care type stuff, how to view different issues, things to take into consideration. Um, these are going to be people who understand that connection and want to do right by their birds and are looking for all the best possible ways to do that.
0: Absolutely. So the moral of the story is, you know, don't trust everything you read or see online Um, do your own research you'll definitely be glad you did Um, and have a plan be prepared Um, you know have a go bag or a cabinet you know with supplies at the ready Um, you never want to be caught off guard and unprepared Um, and part of that is learning about the birds so so i think that's going to wrap it up for this week um Thank you so much once again for listening. We do hope that the information was of some use to you. And you know if you have any questions, don't hesitate to give us an email or leave them in the comments. Um, but we just wanted to thank you again for listening, and we hope to see you again next week. Take care.